0: One of our equity principles is to be humble and to embrace our mistakes. We ask our staff to let us know when we've plugged something up and that does happen. We want them to know that they are heard when they tell us about that and that they can see some sort of a response from us. And it means so much when you feel like you're heard.
1: Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we talk to change makers and innovators, focused on upending systems not designed by or for them to create a more inclusive and equitable world. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome, everyone. I am super excited for our conversation today and our guests. First, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Dr. Christine So is our guest today, and she is currently serving as CEO and president of Humentum, whose work centers on making global development equitable, accountable, and resilient. Christine joined Humentum in November, 2019 from a 25 year career in international development, having worked at all levels of the sector, from providing technical assistance to leading global operations and project management in some of the sector's largest organizations. As a seasoned convener and coalition builder, Dr. So brings deep experience in best practices associated with organizational membership models, which we'll talk about today. Having relaunched and led the Global Health Council, which connects advocates, implementers, and stakeholders around global health priorities worldwide. And over the span of her career, Dr. So has worked for nonprofit, academic, bilateral and multilateral agencies, and spent more than 14 years in West Africa with organizations including UNICEF and USAID. She has been actively engaged in numerous global and national policy and partnership forums, including the World Bank Civil Society Consultative Group for Health, Nutrition, and Population, and the Global Working Group of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. So holds a Ph.D. in epidemiology from Tulane University, two master's degrees from the University of Michigan, a bachelor's degree from Vassar College, and is fluent in French and English. My goodness, what a track record. <laughs> welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, Dr. So. Would you prefer Dr. So or Christine?
0: Yeah. No, Christine is much more my 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 speed. Perfect.
1: Well, welcome. I'm so glad you're here.
0: I'm glad to be here. It's wonderful to... I'm To have this conversation, I'm looking forward to it.
1: Likewise. I mean, just in reading your bio um, and what I know from our initial conversation, there's a lot to unpack about the systems work and the infrastructure work that your organization and your career has focused on in terms of doing (laughs) social good. So maybe we could start there. Maybe we could start with talking a bit about your journey, journey into international development, the experiences that led you really to your current role now as CEO and president of Humentum.
0: Yeah, thank you. And you got my, you know, intro in a nutshell. But I think what I see as this through line is that I've always been very interested in social justice. And when I was a kid and growing up, I was the kid who would argue with anyone about any social justice question to the I think fatigue of my elders. But I really was searching for how I felt that I should fit in and contribute. And through a variety of experiences where I ended up during college was really thinking about that uh, people need to be able to speak for themselves on the issues that concern them. But I picked public health as the area where if we can help alleviate people's health issues, then they're going to be healthier. They're going to have more energy. They're going to have more money. They're going to have less of a burden to be able to speak up for themselves and to be able to be activists in their own rights for their own issues and priorities. And especially this being true for women because women takes on so much of the burden of healthcare within their own families and especially for their children, that if we can help ensure that children have better health then their moms are freer to do things that are not just the daily grind of trying to make sure that your family is intact and healthy. Uh, so I went into public health really from that perspective of social justice, um, and it did not disappoint. I mean, I really, there is always something to do, and I had the just good luck and privilege to be able to work in maternal and child health, sexual reproductive health and rights, and HIV um, for about 25 years, mostly in Africa. Um, but I, I really did work all over the world in that, in that area. Um how that connects to where I am now is that the work that Humentum does, which is really agnostic to thematic area or technical area, we work with any social good organization, um, but we really focus on helping them deliver. It, it, we focus on how they do the work, so not what the work is, but how they do it. So the operating model, the the systems that they use, the infrastructure. So again, systems, policies, training. That they use within their own organizations to be able to to deliver on their mission, and so again, I'm you know I think of this as if we're working with organizations that are devoted to social justice and social good, I'm facilitating that delivery on mission, and so it for me, I at least in my head, it's a very clear through line from um, starting out in epidemiology and uh, maternal and child health to ending up where I am now, which is really on the operations side of things. Um, The other quick thing I'll just say is that also, because i worked in the development world for so many years, I've been working on delivering those programs for many years. So I have experienced firsthand the obstacles that get in the way. And so now with my current job, we really work on helping to alleviate the obstacles, break the bottlenecks for organizations that want to do good and um, really help communities and individuals and families um, live better lives.
1: I appreciate so much of that, that meaning making of, of starting from this lens of social justice, like looking for that unfairness in the world, recognizing that, you know, there are things that I could do even as, even as a, a child to push back and then looking at health and this idea that survival, if we're, if we're not healthy, we're, we're only in survival and we can't Go and fight for the justice that we need. Exactly. Right. So, what a what an amazing place to start. And now, where you're at now, and being able to impact on a on an infrastructure level. And you mentioned this idea of having done this work in the, in a, a variety of different capacities. You've learned some things about what's not working or what those common challenges are. And that's what we talk a lot about on the show: is how do you take what you've learned from this sector and apply it to this industry or because you're working with a lot of different NGOs and social impact social good organizations what mm-hmm. are some of those key challenges that you see that Humentum is able to come in and support
0: well so you know the organizations that we work with are primarily nonprofits. not all of them but most of them I would say all of the organizations that we work with um, you know they're a key to their business model is either that they are doing fundraising with individuals or fundraising through grant-making organizations and foundations or both. And it means that they have a responsibility of stewardship for the money that they're receiving, and they also have a responsibility of accountability to the communities that they work with. And so in some sense, they're kind of the the midpoint between the funder and the community And so they have their own social good mission. They want to deliver on that. But funders have a lot of rules and regulations. They have a lot of bureaucracy. And frankly, a lot of times those rules don't necessarily make sense or they are set up to achieve the funding agency's objectives. But for that intermediary, it becomes very complicated to navigate both the rules and regulations as well as delivering on their mission. And so we really work at that juncture between in the funding flow to help it flow better. And what we see frequently is a funder may put in place a rule or regulation or a policy about their money, the use of their money, that frankly, nobody would really objects to. We understand why they're putting that in place, but the rules that accompany it, aren't made in a way that makes sense or are easy to implement. And so we work both with organizations to help them adjust when it's possible, adjust their own systems to be able to align with that. But also frequently we will work with a group of organizations that are feeling the same pain with a funder and we will go back to that funder and say, hey, we recognize what you're trying to get done. But in fact, the way that it's been designed is counterintuitive. And it's actually slowing things down. And we've been very successful, I think, in helping negotiate and being seen as just a neutral broker in trying to work through some of these issues so that what the funder needs and what the organization that's implementing the programs is doing are aligned, working in the same direction, and aren't full of tension and friction, which actually, again, gets in the way of delivering on the mission.
1: Would you be able to share an example of that, of either, you know, when you had a group of organizations that were misaligned, not even misaligned, but having a challenge in implementing what that funder needed or the expectation?
0: So I think a good area to talk about is when the pandemic started, all of a sudden, none of us could do our work the way we were used to doing our work we couldn't leave home. We had to switch everything to being remote. And one of the other things that we saw was that people who were living outside of their home country pretty much tried to get back to where they were from. And in the global development world, there are a lot of people who are moving around, working in different countries. And when this happened, we saw people shift and get on planes and go home as fast as they could. And then they got Stuck where they were. And organizations had to work with the people who were actually from the countries to do the work. And this was a pretty monumental moment because the expatriates were removed from the equation. And the fact that the expatriates were there is a very long history, very rooted in colonialism, very rooted in a very patriarchal approach to development. Oh, we know best. We're going to come in and do it for you. And what we saw was organizations say, oh, we have people in these communities doing the work, and they can do it in the place of the expatriates we've had, and we want to keep them on. So that was a huge shift, and that was a shift as far as I'm concerned and Humentum is concerned, in the right direction, because it actually moves towards locally-led development, locally-owned development, that the people most um, concerned with the issue and closest to the issue are the ones leading the work on the issue. Now. Getting to your question, what was not working in this? It was working, but when the pandemic started to proceed and people could start moving around, there was a real question raised about, oh, are we gonna continue with that local staff or are we going to fly people back and put them back in place? And what is the donor agency going to require? And so there's been a lot of discussion and there's not one response to this, but what we were able to do was really come in and help facilitate discussions about asking those funding agencies to continue the things that were working that we had discovered because of the pandemic. The pandemic happened, we were forced to work in new ways and rather than just saying, okay, we're gonna snap back to the way that we've always done things. It was really to say, okay, can we have some working groups? Can we have some discussions, some facilitated discussions? to identify what's still working and really try and continue that and recognize that in in fact this was a catalytic moment towards some of the goals that we all hold, such as really having more people working within their own communities to lead the work rather than having expatriates come in and do it.
1: What a disruption. And yeah. how's it been going? Like is that still, I mean this is this is ongoing work. We we've only been out of pandemic era and we yeah. can't, can't even really say that yeah but thinking about you know this next phase of the work are you seeing some positive are you able to to influence are you seeing momentum's work able to influence not only how maybe this these engagements that you were just referencing but how you bring this into ongoing conversation it sounds like this is more of a thematic a thematic um approach
0: yeah so i think i mean in terms of that particular example We've seen some snapback and we've seen some real progress. I think the thing that I would note is that we are seeing more and more international organizations look to um, decentralize their leadership structures. So the typical international NGO approach was to have all of their leadership sitting in a a physical headquarters building in a place which was typically Washington, D.C. or New York or Geneva or London. And now we are seeing organizations really say, oh, well, during the pandemic, we actually had to work remotely in our leadership team, and that worked. And so rather than limiting ourselves to recruiting people in a leadership team who can be co located with us in a physical place, we actually have a much larger pool of people we can pull from for leadership positions if we work remotely and decentralize our leadership teams. And so That's one area where we actually do a lot of advising. We work with organizations to help them think through what does it mean to to decentralize their teams? um, What are best practices in having a remote organization, a remote leadership team? What are the practical and legal implications of having people hired throughout, throughout the world in different countries? And how do you manage all of that? And I think One of the interesting things for Humentum is that we are a fully remote organization. We are about 50 people in 16 countries, eight time zones. We have a fully remote leadership team across a number of countries. And so this is all stuff that we're doing as well. And so one of our core values is we walk the talk, and that means that we try and take the things that we're doing internally and apply them to what we advise on externally. And we really try and take insights from our external work and make sure that we are using them to inform how we work internally. We really approach the concept of an operating model looking at four key components. One is inf- institutional architecture. So the business model, the structure of the organization, the leadership, the governance. The second is people and culture. And um, while that I think, frequently gets equated with kind of human resources and the traditional sense. Um, We're looking at people in culture from, again, an equity perspective. So how do you put in place equitable compensation? How do you decentralize leadership teams? Those sorts of things. The third area is funding and financial systems. So working with organizations and funders to really think about how that funding flow works and what are the, you know, how can funding agencies, foundations, bilateral governments, multilateral agencies, how can they provide the funding to really deliver on what they are uh, mandated to do and work with organizations that deliver that social good? And then finally, com- compliance and risk uh, in all of these relationships, because they are partnerships, they are it's multiple organizations working together. There is always this question of what are the compliance regulations, requirements? How can organizations make sure they are in compliance and really thinking about risk? And sometimes I think I get into the, these sorts of subge- subjects and people's eyes glaze over. But I think maybe the other way to think about compliance and risk in particular is really to think about the question of how do we work in partnership? And what does it mean to have a partnership of consequence, an equitable partnership, an ethical partnership, a respectful partnership? And so that's um, the fourth big area that we really uh, concentrate on and thinking about operating models of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, whether they're local, national, or international, and how they work with the funding agencies that, that actually provide the funds that helps them do what they do. Mm-hmm.
1: That feels, I mean, it is so comprehensive. And do you have a specific size of organization that you tend to work toward? They're more different impact areas that tend to gravitate towards working with Humentum. How does that lay of the land look in terms of the clients that you serve, organizations that you serve?
0: So we really are theme agnostic. We work with organizations that work in just any any social good area you can think of. So clean water, sexual reproductive health and rights, vaccination, governance, all sorts of areas. But we tend to work with organizations that are small media to large. We don't work with tiny organizations because we really are working with organizations that are already getting funding from external donors that are working with at least a couple of million dollars a year. And we tend to work with organizations that see themselves at an inflection point in their development. So um, they may be getting a new funder and they need to make sure that they are set up correctly to be able to manage the funds that they'll be getting. They may be thinking about working in a new region of the world or a new thematic area. They may be really thinking very deeply and we do work with organizations increasingly that are doing this. How do they need to transform to remain relevant And to be aligned with where the global development sector is going in the future. And so, again, this idea of locally-led development really is becoming a a focal point for all these organizations where they and their funders are thinking more about, well, we shouldn't be funding organizations based in Washington, D.C. to be doing the work in another country, we should be funding the the organizations in that country to do the work. And so how do we make that shift? And that doesn't mean that these international organizations just disappear tomorrow. They have years and years of technical expertise and know-how and insight and resources and a very deep commitment to what they do, but it's more helping them rethink what is their role and how can they be an enabler and facilitator of locally led development rather than being the ones who are doing it themselves
1: and that brings up this idea of coalition building and such a such a big component of the work that you do is it's not these yeah. organizations in isolation and it's so wonderful and maybe a little overdue that we're that we're making this shift into focusing on locally led organizations And I'm sure that the infrastructure in some of these models are less mature for that reason. And so when it comes to coalition building and that connection, is there a specific example that you can think of that was, that you felt like this was a really successful collaboration and we were able to amplify our efforts because we came together and because we convened and and had coalition
0: at the center? Yeah, um, and we talk about the power of the collective a lot at Humentum, and we really try and use that in everything we do, whether it's a formal coalition or, uh, you know, just that we are working on a particular topic with a lot of organizations and we can draw insights because we're hearing common themes.
1: Hey, if you are enjoying the show, be sure you subscribe and join our community at trailblazingincolor.com where we share resources, connect you with other amazing trailblazers in our trailblazer circles, and amplify our collective power. Hope we see you there. Okay, back to the show.
0: I think, you know, one ongoing initiative that we have right now, which is, I think, just so exciting, is an an initiative called the IFR for NPO and lots of acronyms, but it's International Financial Reporting for Nonprofit Organizations. And basically, I'm going to try and explain this in like simple terms. I am not an accountant at all, so I have learned to love this initiative. Basically, it means that in lots of countries in the the world, there is no standard for accounting. So... I may account one way and you account a d- different way. And so if you have multiple organizations, you can't be sure that they're all what they're using the terminology or they're using the approaches in their financial accounting in the same way. And it means that if you're a funder, you don't necessarily know what you're going to be looking at with a particular organization. And if you're that organization... You don't have a standard to point to to say to a funder, see, you can believe our books because we work to this standard. So that was the status quo several years ago. It still is today. But through this initiative, IFR for NPO, Humentum and its partners are actually developing a global standard for nonprofit accounting. And the really exciting thing is that, I mean, we are host to this initiative we are leading the initiative, but it is a huge collective effort. And I started at Humentum four years ago. At that point, they were in their first year. And I said, how are you going to get buy-in for this? Who's going to be contributing to this? We've had contributions from people in over 190 countries in the world on this so far. It is right now, actually, a draft of one component of this accounting standard is out for comment, and they are conducting webinars in French, Spanish, English, uh, several other languages, I believe. They're actually some of the great learnings that we've had at Humentum about doing translation and using AI for translation stuff is coming out of this initiative because they're making such an effort to get input from everywhere in the world, because there are nonprofits everywhere in the world. They're doing their accounting and this is gonna be helpful to them. Um, last thing I'll say about this is it's supposed to launch at the end of 2025, fingers crossed, but we're on, you know, we're on track for that. And it is one of these things that we hear people t- talk about locally led development. Oh, it's so important, it's putting people on the driver's seat. This is one of those really practical things that if it's not in place, you can talk all you want about locally led development, but if small nonprofits have nothing to point to as the standard for how they're doing their accounting, there's just this very practical obstacle to them getting the funds to do the work. And that's this is one of the things we work on, and that I get really excited about, even though I am totally not from the accounting world but i know I know what this is going to mean for all of those organizations out there once it gets put in place.
1: It's gonna change the whole game, and it does I it does, and yeah. it's not short term work you said this has been ongoing since twenty
0: eighteen yeah, I think so it's yes, and it's interesting because. So one of the things we complain about in the international development sector is that funders typically give money, like they'll say, okay, here's a three-year grant. And I'm sure the same thing is true with funding when it's a domestic organization as well. You know, here's a three-year grant, here's a five-year grant. And then lo and behold, the grant ends and there's some sort of a gap before it's renewed or it isn't renewed. And then you're like, I fell off a financial cliff. How do I keep this going? That sort of thing. So We all don't like that. And frequently we call for, oh, we need to have longer running, open-ended initiatives so that we can really develop a sustainable approach and have long-term funding. I don't disagree with that. But with IFR for NPO, we have been experiencing that. This is an initiative. It has multiple funders and they come in and provide contributions in tranches of money Um, along the way. And so, in fact, we are kind of always fundraising for this initiative. And that's really tiring. Uh, So we are experiencing the other side of what we complain about. We've been experiencing what we have been calling for in terms of this long term funding. But it also has its own challenges.
1: I mean, back to walking, walking the talk.
0: You're living it. You're breathing it.
1: You're having to sustain this initiative because there is, you know that there is such high value and impact to it. And like I said, it's going to change everything. And as we're talking about, let's stay on this initiative for a little bit. Just think about the, the levers of collaboration that have happened along the way. I mean, just thinking from a tactical standpoint, engaging with 190 countries and Holding um, webinars, conversations in multiple languages. What does that process look like of engagement? <laughs> and I know this is a, we could spend a whole hour and a half on this topic, but maybe even just yeah. some framing that will help someone else who is looking to go towards something initiative wise. That's going to require scale and require collaboration across organizations. Yeah, what does that starting that approach look like, or what are some of your best practices to engage? In?
0: Well, I mean, again, you know, this is something that started pre-pandemic. It was going to have a lot of in-person work, and so they had to totally switch their approach. And you know, in this case, I think technology has really been our friend. We use we use webinars, we use spot polls, we use surveys all sorts of interesting stuff, to uh, technology stuff, to be able to have a bigger outreach. Uh, I already mentioned using the translation for the documents, for the webinars, for the comments that are coming in, that's been really helpful. And I think one of the things that's been really important about this initiative is that it is very transparent in the process. Um, So there is a very clearly delineated process that we can explain to anybody. And it is very transparently consultative. So pieces are put together, but everything goes out to consultation. Um, Quite frankly, we don't always get positive feedback. Sometimes action, we're working right now through comments about that it's too complicated and that how can you do this in more simple language? And that's incredibly valuable because for this to be adopted and for this to be useful, it has to be something that people can use. And that is a perfect analogy for so much of the stuff that we work on. People have great ideas, but sometimes they get lost in translation. And what ends up actually being released or uh, applied is complicated in ways that, you know, either tire people out because they can't figure it out or it just doesn't make sense or they do it wrong so in this case you know the the collaborative effort has been really focused around making sure that the product is going to be something that people can use and so that's exciting i think the other thing that's a, it's important to to note here is that we're looking at a product that's going to be released but we're also thinking about you know it it has to be credible if we're Talking about accounting standards, these are things that are really very specific and very rooted and long uh, history and expertise around accounting. And so it has to be credible. And that means that we have a governance group that is working on the governance of this and how it will be managed once it is launched. We have a donor reference group in place. So the donors who are going to be asked to use this are also being queried in what they need and how they understand this and would they contribute their comments to it? And so that is a collective effort on the part of donors. And I just want to thank them for it because they are investing their time and effort in it. And it means, again, getting back to this idea of credibility, if we've got donors who have participated in the donor reference group who understand it and who can advocate for its adoption that's going to really move this forward in a way that wouldn't if uh, we hadn't involved them. So I think going back to this idea of if some of our listeners are thinking about collective efforts, it's really important, I think, to do very in-depth stakeholder mapping. And sometimes the stakeholder group goes beyond the first people you think of. And so you really need to maybe not necessarily think about just the people who are used participating in your effort, first degree participants or direct participants, but also really think about who are those people talking to or who are they working with or who are the folks in the regulatory environment around what you're doing because they're going to have an opinion about things and you want to bring them along with you as well. So it really, it really is thinking, I guess, you know, how can we use technology to facilitate this? And how can we really make sure that we're involving all the stakeholders who need to be involved and ensuring buy-in so that if somebody isn't bought in, they can get in the way of progress. And in fact, you want to bring them along instead of having them say, oh, I don't understand. I wasn't involved. I'm going to you know, be a roadblock to this. That's
1: mm-hmm. so many important things. Thanks for summarizing it so nicely <laughs> there at the end too. And that a few important things that I heard that I want to emphasize as well as the idea of this tr- transparency and process that yep. I'm certain goes such a long way in trust building because you have to have such high levels of trust with these stakeholders because in a lot of ways when you think about the governance side of things their credibility is on the line their reputation so they're lending their perspectives their credibility and their reputation to this initiative they want to feel that sense of trust and buy-in like you said being a part of this and knowing that your your opinions are valued and there's a really strong structure in place for feedback too. So you also mentioned the iterative process and not only of, of the creation of what's coming out of this work, making sure it's aligned to all stakeholders' needs and then recalibrating on stakeholders too. We think it's this set of people, but actually the further we get along the work, let's make sure we're continuing to mm-hmm. check in on that. So So many great Pieces that this work takes that we don't always think about. We come in with, yeah. with the best of intentions. And then we may, we may impact our own work by not thinking more holistically and, and looking out for the, the people side too uh, of all of this. Yeah. You know, the users who is actually going to be using this and leveraging this information can they read it? And that this is too complicated feedback is so helpful. Because you can spend yeah. five, six years working on something and then find it actually doesn't meet the core needs. So this is really exciting, yeah. Christine. I'm, I can't wait to continue to see, to watch this work unfold because it is going to change the world for fundraising and yeah. funding and how we can measure impact. So. Thank you for telling us more about that. It's so exciting.
0: Yeah. yeah. so <laughs> yeah, it's I made an accounting geek We're out of work, you. It's no, still a work in
1: progress, <laughs> but if you can do it, I can do it. You're inspiring me to get excited oh, about there the you go. numbers. So, well, let's talk about I wanna talk a little bit about your leadership and how you approach leading an organization like this, leading work like this. So in the con in the context of leadership integrity, because Walk in the talk has come up a few times in our conversation. How do you approach transparency and accountability within Humentum? And then what strategies or mechanisms do you put in place or does the organization have in place to foster a culture of openness and responsibility ultimately?
0: Thanks. So I've been with Humentum exactly four years. It was my anniversary was last Saturday. And, you know, we also Well, we were a fully remote organization when I joined, but we were doing a lot of in-person work. So the pandemic really made us question everything we do, how we do it, how we're organized, how we work together. And, you know, and that started after I'd been in place three months. So it kind of threw all the pieces up in the air for me very quickly. And in some ways, you know, there's always disruption when a new CEO joins an organization. And in some ways for me... I didn't have to throw the pieces up in the air. The pandemic did it. The pandemic also, I think, really made us question deeply, think about what kind of leaders are we in the organization? How, and for me, you know, how am I leading this new group of people who I don't know? And we also, we, Humentum was created out of a merger of three organizations in 2017. So at that point, we were not, that far out from the merger. So we were also still kind of getting to know each other. And I think the first thing, you know, thinking about transparency and accountability, the first thing is emotional vulnerability. And so my kids will tell you that I cry at TV commercials. So I am a crier. But, you know, when the pandemic started, there were a couple of moments where we were having all staff meetings, gosh, every other day, just checking in. And there were some moments when I cried and there were some moments when I talked to people about the fact that I had to take a nap every day because I couldn't get through my day because there were so many unknowns that, you know, my I was just exhausted to my core. But the feedback I got from our staff was incredible. They were like, thank you so much for saying that, because now I feel okay about the fact that I keep bursting into tears. And I was like, everybody needs to be taking a nap every day, (laughs) you know. And so I think that helped establish me as somebody who values transparency in the organization. Um, I also don't have much of a poker face, so, you know, people know what I'm thinking. But but it was really, you know, I'm not going to ask these people to do things and to act in ways that I'm not capable of doing. And I still very much believe that. And we also, you know, as many organizations did, we instituted flexibility for staff right from the beginning in the pandemic. I think differently from many organizations, we are still very much built around flexibility. And so when you apply for a job at Humentum, again, transparency, our salary chart is on, is publicly available on our website In a screening interview, we tell you how much it pays. We don't negotiate salary because we know that that's where biases are introduced. Oh, I like that person better than that person. Oh, I like how they answered the question. Let me give them more money. We don't do that. So that's very important. And we advertise the core hours that we need you to work. And then we let you be flexible about the rest of the time and how you organize your day. And so that's actually been really, really successful. We have, we just got, did our employee engagement survey and got just phenomenally great results from that. And the thing that we hear more than anything is that people appreciate the walking, the talk, they appreciate the transparency, they appreciate, you know, they, they know what they're getting, they know what's expected of them and there's flexibility. And we really just try and You know, respect people as human beings and not as bots and robots. That's all important to me. And I think the other thing I'll just note is that for me as a leader, I really have tried to bring my own experiences as an employee into how I lead. Again, I don't want, I I know the things that I didn't like being an employee of somebody else. And I have tried to the extent possible to bring that into Humentum and really make sure that we have policies that aren't putting people in that kind of a position. And I obviously don't do that by myself. I have a great team, but we are going in the right direction. And I think again, that transparency, when we, we've changed the way we recruit. And so when we are recruiting, um, We spend a lot of the screening interviews on just talking about values and just from the beginning, trying to find people who align with our core values and we think are going to be a good fit. And I think that what we're seeing from that is that we have an an employee pool, a team of people who really say, yeah, this is the place I want to be. And one of our core values is we love what we do. And I hear that pretty much from everybody. So. Which is huge, given
1: the, the scope of work that you all do about mm-hmm. the, the very ho- home page of humans. We help organizations be more equitable, accountable, and resilient. And I think about the level of resilience your- is required to have. Mm-hmm. And you can't have that if you don't have each other, if you don't have connection, if you don't have psychological safety to say, I'm mm-hmm. having a really tough time over here. And if we don't have the safety to do that, we can't continue to shift really hard, really important work and loving, loving what you do, being able to engage in work that, you know, has direct influence on how the future unfolds. I guess I can guess that's pretty impactful, but also knowing like exactly what the organization stands for at any given time, feeling connected to <laughs> talking about people and culture that. It's so important and I'm so glad that you're seeing directly in the results of the engagement survey that it's working. What we're doing is working. And now we can also take this model and learn from what we're doing here and apply it to other organizations. So the way that you approach all of this, your team too, Christine, is
0: really, really. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it, it by no means says that the work is done. We're thrilled that we're getting such great employee engagement survey results. That just means we've got to keep it up. We've got to do even better. And really having outlets to talk to staff, to hear from staff. So we have core values and we have equity principles. And one of our equity principles is to be humble and to embrace our mistakes. And we make mistakes. We ask our staff to let us know when we've plumbed something up and that does happen. But the big thing is, is that we want them to know that they are heard when they tell us about that and that they can see some sort of a response from us. And, you know, sometimes it may just be an apology, like, oh, we this was not our intent. Sorry about that. We'll do better in the future. Sometimes it's, oh, wow, we didn't really realize that the way we'd set this up didn't work. And so now we're rethinking it and we're going to make some changes. and I think, I, again, speaking from my own experience of um, 30 years of work experience in this sector, it means so much when you feel like you're heard. You know, when you're when you feel like you're shouting at a brick wall, it then's just it's a recipe for frustration. And eventually you leave because you just can't keep it up.
1: Yeah. So that that accountability, that atonement, that recognition that we are imperfect beings yeah. and we're going to make mistakes and we want we know. As leaders, uh, as an organization, we don't know all the answers, and we're constantly committed to learning. Your voice is valid, and your perspective matters, and we're going to continue to show you that in in a number of ways. So that's it's so beautiful because yeah. not always do organizations that humility piece. I mean, that's what comes down to it, is is we're so we can be so afraid of harm that it ends up actually harming far more than just. Mm-hmm. We are imperfect and we messed up and we're really sorry and we're gonna fix it or that acknowledge. Huh. Oh well, Christine. And I, I mean I could talk to you for <laughs> yeah. another several hours, but I know we you have to go. You have to go relax. Start your your the rest of your weekend. So I have a few more wrap up questions. Starting with Sure. You know, the Trailblazing in Color podcast. I wanna know who trailblazed the path for you, who set this path for you to be. Where You know, so
0: you sent me that as a prep question. And I was like, I, I honestly always have trouble with these kinds of questions because I have to say there are so many. And OK, now I'm getting emotional here. I'm, I'm going to say my mom. And so my mother got her PhD from University of Chicago in 1958. And in cultural geography, she was one of the founders of the Women's Studies program at the University of Michigan. And we live together now. She's joined our household. She's turning 92 in two weeks. And she just went and did all these really amazing, groundbreaking things in her career. And Like, she knows that they were groundbreaking and amazing, but she's very matter-of-fact about them. And so when I was a kid, you know, I saw her working really hard. And frankly, I saw her not getting the recognition and appreciation that I think she deserved. And I think she probably never got from the university in the way that she deserved. But she certainly inspired me. And she also had a lot of friends around her and colleagues around her who were also doing amazing stuff. And so all of that really helped me think, well, of course, I'm just going to go do what I want. I'd say the other person that I'd just like to mention by name is a woman named Fatima Mernisi. She was a really groundbreaking Muslim feminist. She wrote a book called Beyond the Veil in gosh the 80s probably that was really just progressive about muslim women just being able to you know have their own voice and be activists in their own right and i ended up through a variety of really crazy coincidences i ended up living with her sister's family in morocco on and off for about a year and a half and and fatima was my mentor and just again really was just a groundbreaking influence in my life and she passed away several years ago and still but I'm still close with their, with the family and that's been something that really kind of helped set me on my path so those are the two people I'll mention there are so many others well, how lucky
1: but, are we that you had such phenomenal role models and mentors your mother and Fata and so there's to bring you to doing this work this this work today i'm so grateful to know you christine to know about Humentum and and the incredible scale scalable work you're doing as we're ending there going into 2024 what are you most
0: i keep these days thinking about the idea that hope is radical hope is revolutionary and i am hopeful i love the work we're doing i love the team that we're doing it with We are getting noticed. We are getting traction on the stuff that we're doing. I see more and more people working alongside us on their own things in their own right. But I just see more and more parallel efforts that are starting to intersect and make that power of the collective. And the world is just unbelievably uncertain and perilous and threatening in a lot of ways. And I'm going to stick to the hope is radical mindset as much as I can going into 2024 in the future and just remind the folks that I work with and the people I interact with on a daily basis, that is where we have to work from. And I have known for being the, I, I am always the optimist in the group, but that has served me well. And I really appreciate the people who provide the counterbalance to that. I think that's very important. Um, But I'm fortunate to work with a group of people where, you know, we have more ideas than we can actually act upon. And um, at the end of the day, we are hopeful.
1: I, for one, am so grateful for your radical hope, the work that you all are doing at Humentum and the, the value system that you and the organization operate, because it really does. It is providing so much insight and a model for how this can truly be done. And like you said, the work is never done. It's constantly about reevaluating, meeting people where they're at and connecting with going on in the world, staying that course and staying connected to who we are and not letting go of that regardless of what other voices and chatter we may have in in our sphere, in our ecosystems. Yeah. Christine, this has been such an empowering, inspiring conversation. Thank you for coming on the show. Any final words or thoughts you want to share with listeners about, you know, ongoing commitment to making the world a better place go vote go vote yes thank you we're just coming <laughs> off get involved,
0: get involved let's go you know we we have several months now until we vote but we all have to get involved find so.
1: what you care about and um, use your vote that's, a, that's another commitment
0: i want to make for 2024 is myself getting myself out there to work on on election you know uh, keep, priorities So
1: more local involvement on your end Again, more more doing what you say.
0: I work remotely, globally, but I live in a place and uh, I need to contribute at the local level as well.
1: Well, thank you for inspiring us all. I'm so grateful for your time today. And thanks for being on the Trailblazing in Color podcast.
0: I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the great questions.
1: And uh, it's been lovely getting to know you too. You too. Thanks, Christine. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to hit subscribe for future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at at trailblazingincolor and at trailblazingincolor.com slash podcast. The Trailblazing in Color podcast is created and executive produced by me, Sarah Chapman Becerra. The Trailblazing in Color podcast season one production team includes Alicia Archer and the podcast Bestie team, led by Angie M. Jordan and supported by Jean Credit and Sarah Decker. Our theme song was composed by Troy Chapman. Thanks, Dad.